let's spend a little time on the book of Enos itself, which has incredible insights into how faith is passed on, not just how plates are passed on from father to son or brother to brother. Verse 2, he begins his story. I will tell you of the wrestle which I had before God, before I received a remission of my sins. Notice one important word there. This was a wrestle before God, not a wrestle with God. I think sometimes we picture repentance as this struggle between us and Heavenly Father. Like, almost we have to pin Him down to be merciful or twist His arm in order to be forgiving. And that's not the Father that I know. That's not the Savior that we worship. They are rich in mercy, Paul teaches us. They delight in forgiveness. And so the wrestle that we end up having is not with God. It's with ourselves. It's this struggle of soul that Paul talks about so clearly in his writings. And the wrestle that Enos had before God eventually resulted in the remission of his sins. Behold, verse 3, I went to hunt beasts in the forest. And the words which I had often heard my father speak, the word often is essential here. If we are trying to pass down faith to someone else, these are things that have to be done often. Frequent teaching, reiteration of truth, second witnesses, even if we happen to be the first witness. We teach often in hopes that someday something might actually sink in. Notice, however, what it was that he was teaching him. He's, Jacob taught his son often things concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints. Those truths finally sunk deep into Enos's heart that day. I wonder sometimes if our perspective on the gospel is essentially positive or essentially negative. If we focus more on eternal life or more on eternal condemnation, if we emphasize the joy of the saints, or if we seem by the way we teach or the way we live the gospel, that rather than joy, our emphasis is on the drudgery of the saints or the boredom of the saints or the long-suffering of the saints. Sherry Dew once talked about the way we describe the gospel sometimes makes it seem like life on the chain gang. One more day, chip and rock, just trying to survive membership in a church that won't let me do anything. That was not Jacob's approach with his son. It was eternal life and the joy of the saints that were constantly on his lips. By the way, Enos got it. The way he describes it at the very end of his book, notice this. Verse 27, he's talking about Judgment Day, which seems to strike most of us uh, with some fear, but not Enos. He says in verse 27, I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure and he will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. This is a son who looks forward to judgment with rejoicing, with pleasure, as if it were a great blessing. Those are the words he uses in verse 27. I'm so grateful that his father emphasized eternal life and the joy of the saints. And what a difference that made as he passed his faith along to his son. At the end of verse 3, that other phrase, those truths sunk deep into his heart. 
as parents or as priesthood leaders, as teachers, as friends, as missionaries, we can't control when that happens. We can plant seeds, but whether or not they will sink deep into the heart has a lot to do with the softness of the soil in which we're planting it. In Enos's case, this sinking deep into his heart occurred when he was out hunting beasts in the forest. I've only been hunting once. I'm from LA. I think the only hunt people are used to there is a manhunt. But I remember in college going hunting with my cousins who lived in Idaho. And we spent all day out in the freezing cold and never saw a single thing. We had plenty of downtime. Imagine what Enos was doing during those long hours. He says in verse 4 that his prayer lasted all the day long and into the night. I doubt that this was 12 or 18 or 24 hours on his knees. But to have a constant prayer in his heart during this downtime as he's hunting animals, allowing the truths that his father had taught him to sink deep into his heart. If you're struggling with some cabin fever during this period of social isolation, I wonder if God is giving us similar experiences or similar opportunities for us to allow his truths to sink deep into our heart. I've heard it said that sometimes what is keeping us from God is not necessarily that we are in transgression, but that we're in distraction. It's amazing how seldom we really are alone with our own thoughts. And yet that would have been the case for Enos when these oft-repeated truths from his father finally are given the chance to sink deep into his heart. And verse 4, his soul hungered. He kneeled down before his maker, and I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication for mine own soul. Typically in verse 4, we focus on the length of Enos's prayer, but I want to focus instead on the depth of his prayer. In fact, the verbs that are used to describe, and even an adjective that describes this prayer, are astonishing. The adjective first is mighty, mighty prayer. We pray all the time as members of the church. We pray before just about everything. I remember once coming home from a long day in high school and dinner was long over, but my mom had left a plate out for me. I began folding my arms and bowing my head to offer a prayer over it. And my mom, who was overdoing dishes, chimed in and just said, oh, we already blessed it. And a little snarky teenager that I was, I looked over and smiled and said, appreciate that. You mind if I thank him myself? I have a feeling that blessing food has very little to do with food and very much to do with the person about to partake of it. Sometimes I even prefer not to bless the food when I'm praying before a meal just to show God that I understand this is more about making a connection between you and me than it has to do with making this nourish and strengthen my body. Those kinds of prayers are seldom mighty. They are more along the lines of vain repetition. Verse 4 is also full of verbs that are powerful about, about prayer. Notice that the word say isn't used here. Instead, it's verbs like cry or raise. I cried unto him in mighty prayer. All the day long did I cry unto him. When the night came, I did still raise my voice high, that it reached the heavens. 
I sometimes wonder how many of my prayers actually reach the heavens because I didn't raise my voice high enough for it to get there. I've sometimes wondered if prayers were visible, would my ceiling in my bedroom look like the junior high school cafeteria with spit wads all over the ceiling? That's as high as they got and didn't go any further because all I was doing was saying my prayers. I remember another flippant moment as a teenager. I'm surprised my mom put up with me. She asked me if I'd said my prayers. And I smiled and said, which prayer was I supposed to say? Was I supposed to say the going to bed prayer? Am I supposed to say the blessing on the food prayer? Am I supposed? We have so many prayers that we say. And it's almost this rote, memorized. I remember once praying at night and I was saying my going to bed prayer. with the same phrases I always used about help me get a good night's sleep and help me wake refreshed in the morning. And all of a sudden, my my mind must have jumped tracks because I went from saying the go-to-bed prayer to saying the blessing on the food prayer. And I'm saying, and help me have a good night's sleep and please bless the food and nourish and strengthen my body. And I realized, oh no, I just blessed food somewhere. I I guess I need a a midnight snack or something. I gotta go find whatever I blessed and go eat it. And then I'll go back and finish my going to bed prayer. These prayers that we say, I'm amazed that throughout scripture, the verb say is never associated with prayer, except once. And that's in the sacrament prayers. Those prayers have to be said precisely. And yet every other time in the scriptures, the verbs are so much more powerful than just saying something. We are crying We are pleading, we are begging, we are raising our voice high. That's what mighty prayer looks like. And if we hope to pass on faith or to obtain the faith that has been passed on to us, then our prayers of spiritual confirmation must be mighty. The length may vary, but the depth needs to be there. As a result of Enos's mighty prayer, Verse 5, there came a voice unto him, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. And I, Enos, knew that God could not lie, wherefore my guilt was swept away. That's one of my favorite phrases. My guilt was swept away. I think often we struggle, first, to repent, but sometimes even more so, to feel forgiven as a result of our repentance. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to accept the fact that we might actually be clean, that God might actually be as good as his word when he says that we are forgiven. What was it that allowed Enos's guilt to be swept away? Not just the voice of God telling him his sins are forgiven, because I have a feeling that for many of us, we have felt that still small voice give us similar reassurance. It's that we lack the phrase that begins verse 6. I knew that God could not lie. It's our understanding of divine attributes. It's knowing what God is like, which Joseph Smith said is the second key principle to exercising saving faith in him. Understanding God's attribute is what allows us to trust him when he says that we are forgiven. And that was the case for Enos. He then asks in verse 7, Lord, how is it done? I I believe that it's done. I have felt that, and I trust you. But teach me how forgiveness comes about. 
I wonder if he was asking for mechanics. I wonder if he was asking about process. How does the atonement forgive sin? I want a theology lesson now. And yet the Lord's response in verse 8, Because of thy faith in Christ, whom thou hast never before heard nor seen. If Enos was asking for process, he didn't get it. If he was asking for mechanics, that was not part of the Lord's explanation. The Lord's explanation was simply, because you have faith. Faith in Christ's mercy, in his grace, is what enables the atonement to sweep away sin. And if you trust me when I tell you that you are forgiven, let me worry about the mechanics. Trust me when I say that you are forgiven. Know that I cannot lie. And you'll be able to feel that forgiveness flow into you. I think often when we try to pass on the faith, we think we have to explain the mechanics or the processes of everything. How did Joseph Smith translate the plates? How does the atonement work? How does revelation occur? And as much as we might try to explain, the most important part of coming to understand these things is experiencing them, not receiving an explanation for them. If we can help whoever we're trying to pass the faith on to, to experience the atonement, then they'll understand it even if they don't get the mechanics. If we can help them experience revelation, then even if they don't know the process by which the Holy Ghost fuses truth into our soul, we will feel that fusing take place and we'll be able to trust the outcome even if we don't understand the mechanics behind it. The Lord seems ready to finish the conversation at the end of verse 8. Go to, he says, thy faith hath made thee whole. But Enos isn't done. In verse 9, you start to see the, almost the epicenter of his experience was his own receiving of divine forgiveness. But that drop in the water begins to expand out. And the, the circumference of his love begins to expand in all directions. Verse 9 then, It came to pass that when I had heard these words, I began to feel a desire for the welfare of my brethren, the Nephites. So he poured out his whole soul unto God for them. Again, he didn't say a prayer. He poured out his whole soul. I wonder what that pouring out might look like for you and me. In verse 10, while I was thus struggling in the spirit, again, another wrestle, not with God, but struggling with himself, perhaps his own feelings towards his people, perhaps his own feelings of inadequacy, of why haven't I been able to convey these truths more powerfully enough to them? While I was thus struggling in the spirit, behold, the voice of the Lord came unto my mind again with a promise that he would visit Enos' brethren according to their diligence. As a result of that promise, in verse 11, I, Enos, had heard these words, and my faith began to be, here's our word, unshaken in the Lord. I wonder if that was a word that, that Jacob used often enough that it stuck in Enos's mind as well. My faith began to be unshaken in the Lord. That didn't end his prayer. That just increased its intensity. So he began to pray with many long strugglings for my brethren, the Lamanites. It went from himself to his own people, to his own enemies. And in verse 12, he prayed and labored with all diligence 
until the Lord promised blessings according to Enos's faith. One of my favorite quotes from Joseph Smith, he said, The nearer we get to our Heavenly Father, the more we are disposed to look with compassion on perishing souls. We feel that we want to take them upon our shoulders and cast their sins behind our backs. That's exactly what Enos is feeling. His faith has been fortified through his own forgiveness. And having come nearer to his Heavenly Father in that process, he is more disposed than ever before to look with compassion upon perishing souls. He wants to pick up his people upon his back. He wants to take the Lamanite sins and cast them behind him. He wants to pass along his faith to those who truly need it. In verse 13, as he prays on behalf of the Lamanites, notice how specific his prayer becomes. He says, Just in case my people, the Nephites, should fall into transgression, which they will, and by any means be destroyed, and the Lamanites should not be destroyed, which is exactly what happens, that the Lord God would preserve a record of my people, the Nephites, even if it so be by the power of his holy arm, that it might be brought forth at some future time unto the Lamanites, that perhaps they might be brought unto salvation. If that's not a prophetic prayer, I don't know what is. This is exactly what ended up taking place, and exactly how the Lord responded to it. It makes me wonder, are these Enos's words to God, or are these God's words to Enos, and then back to God? It reminds me of bearing testimony when you're a little kid, and your parents are whispering these things into your ear. In the third Nephi, it says that the Nephites, as they prayed, did not multiply many words, for it was given unto them what they should pray. I think sometimes the best prayers are the ones that are still whispered into our ear by a loving Heavenly Father. Ask me for this. Pray for this. Thank me for this. Because of what we will learn in the process. In this case, Enos's prophetic prayer seems to be divinely directed. Verse 14, For at the present, he says, our strugglings were vain in restoring them to the true faith. They swore in their wrath that if they could, they would destroy our records and us, along with all the traditions of our fathers. Notice, by the way, if we're trying to pass our faith along to the next generation or to whomever we're trying to share it with, your strugglings, again, active verb, may be in vain, especially when it comes to restoring them to the true faith. If someone has had the gospel and they've left it, sometimes those struggles to help them return might seem vainest for the longest period of time. And yet I love the words, at the present. They're not yet home. My efforts have not yet been successful. But that's just at the present. Sometimes we have to wait for hearts to soften. Sometimes we have to wait for someone to be on a long hunting expedition so that they have time to be alone with their own thoughts so that things that we have said to them repeatedly over the years finally have a chance to sink deep into softer soil. In this case, if we were to force our faith upon them right now, they would destroy it and us, or perhaps in our case, their relationship with us. 
Sometimes it's a matter of knowing how frequently to repeat truths and when to let the, the soil lie fallow. At the end of 1 Nephi chapter 8, when Lehi has taught his family about his vision of the tree of life and realized that his oldest two sons are not coming to partake of the fruit, he exhorts them with all the feelings of a tender parent. He preaches unto them. He testifies. He teaches. He does all these things that those last few verses of 1 Nephi chapter 8 are full of wonderful parenting verbs. But I think the one that parents sometimes skip is the very last one. That he did cease speaking unto them. He knew when to quit. Not to quit permanently. But when to hold off. In fear that these particular pearls. If cast before loved ones that are not yet ready to receive them. Might end up turning again and rending you. Destroying your records and their precious relationship with you. By the way, there's no need to force our faith upon the unready or the unwilling, because notice what Enos says in verse 15. Wherefore, I knowing that the Lord God was able to preserve our records, he knew that God could preserve these things. It doesn't have to happen in the moment that we are teaching or testifying to the person that we're trying to restore to the true faith. Our words... Our testimony, our example, most of all our love for them is something that God can preserve in their memory to work upon them. This is the story of the prodigal son. When did he come to himself? He was off in that far country where his father could not follow. But he had this moment where he came to himself. That's the key moment in that parable. That's not something the father could force. But when it came, the first thoughts that son had of home were positive ones. He knew that his father was kind to his servants to the point that he must at least reserve some space for this wayward and wandering son. In fact, as positive as his thoughts were of his father, he even underestimated them. And when he came home ready to offer his, himself as a servant, his father wouldn't even let him get that far in the conversation. He interrupted him early and said, full son, full privileges, back in my house. We can't control the coming to themselves moment, but we can treat them in such a way while they are with us, and even when they're away from us, that whenever they do have that moment and think of home, they'll know that they are welcome. God can preserve truth in the heart of someone who is far, far away. And they will know how to come home when their desire to come home finally returns to them. From age 15 to age 20, my wife was totally away from God, the church, and as much as possible, her family. When she finally had her coming to herself moment, she turned directly to the Book of Mormon. There's a lot more to this story I may share in some other time. But because of all the family scripture study her family had done over the years, because of all the examples her parents and siblings had given her of scripture study, when she started wondering, how do I come home? That truth had been preserved in her. There's going to be something in scripture 
that will help me homeward. And the Book of Mormon was what saved her, preserved in memory because of the incredible example of parents who had often spoken of the Word of God. I'm so grateful for that. Verse 17, Enos' response to this promise sounds a lot like what we saw earlier on in verse 6. Enos says, And I, Enos, knew it would be according to the covenant which he had made. Wherefore, my soul did rest. I knew something about God, that he keeps his covenants. And as a result of what I knew about God, my response could be, Wherefore, my soul did rest. I knew he couldn't lie. My guilt was swept away. I knew he kept his word. My soul did rest. And then the Lord even says in verse 18, Enos, you're not the only person who's asked me for this. Thy fathers have also required of me this thing. Talk about verbs. Your fathers have required it. They didn't just ask. They didn't just plead. They demanded, required of me this thing. That's strong faith. And it shall be done unto them according to their faith, for their faith was like unto thine if we're trying to understand what the Book of Mormon teaches about passing faith along, verse 18 shows that it has been successful thus far. Your faith reminds me of the faith of your fathers. By the way, just because Enos received this promise that eventually it's all going to work out, this record will come forth to the Lamanites someday. It was the someday that Enos could have faith in, but didn't want to have to completely wait for in verse 20, I bear record that the people of Nephi did seek diligently to restore the Lamanites unto the true faith in God. Even though they knew that they were being unsuccessful then, they kept at it. Even though they knew that success would someday come in the future, they kept at it in the present. Again, know when to pause, but also know never to quit as we try to pass along our faith to other people. Just a final thought or two from the book of Enos. In verse 23, he says that there was nothing save it was exceeding harshness, preaching and prophesying of wars, contentions, destruction, continually reminding them of death and the duration of eternity and the judgments and power of God, stirring them up continually to keep them in the fear of the Lord. Nothing short of these things, exceeding great plainness of speech, would keep them from going down speedily to destruction. It's interesting that at the beginning of this chapter, he talks about the positive approach that his father used with him. Eternal life, the joy of the saints. But by the end, because of the wickedness of the people, Enos laments that the negative approach was also necessary. Rather than eternal life, it was the duration of eternity and the judgments and power of God. Rather than the joy of the saints, it was harsh preaching and prophesying of wars and contentions and destruction. Rather than sweeping away guilt, there was a stirring them up in the fear of the Lord. The goal was the same both times, to receive a remission of sin. But the means to get to that end was different based on the audience. There will be times when we are passing on the faith, hopefully the majority of the time, where our positive, optimistic, gentle, loving approach will be just what's needed to soften the soil and allow the seed to germinate 
but there will be other times like the parable of the sower when it's wayside when it's stony ground we talked about this with Jacob chapter 5 where much stronger digging or harrowing or stirring up is necessary to prepare the soil Enos finally says in verse 26 as he's about to go to the grave and pass the baton on I must preach and prophesy unto this people and declare the word according to the truth which is in Christ and I have declared it in all my days and have rejoiced in it above that of the world again back to the positive side are we declaring truth in all our days again knowing when to pause but knowing never to quit and are we rejoicing in it above any other thing back to the joy of the saints back to the eternal life that God gives to the faithful are we rejoicing in these things as we try to pass along faith don't just preach and don't just teach preach and teach joyfully it makes all the difference